coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy weekend to you. Lots to cover today. We'll go over uh, Joe Biden's uh, address last night to the nation from the Oval Office. A little bit later, we can't not cover... Poor old Jim Jordan, bless his heart. That's what we say in the South when we are sort of insulting. Bless his heart. Uh, Anyway, so we got that to cover and the implications on the inability of the GOP to elect a House Speaker and what uh, sort of implications it has on the rest of governance. And by the way, when it comes to Israeli-Ukrainian aid, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot riding on the House having a speaker, or maybe they'll work something out and it won't matter so much. Anyway, we'll uh, discuss that as much as we can. Uh, again, we'll, we'll go over uh, the president's speech last night from the Oval Office. Uh, him trying to thread a needle and or maybe walk a tightrope. And it's pretty interesting. I, I had a little snapshot of how difficult it is to try and please everyone at least 75% when you're president of the United States in a situation like that. When I sat today at lunch with some friends, and one of, the, well, first of all, we have one Jewish friend at the table, and someone else, someone sitting right next to him said, why are we supporting Israel anyway? Awkward. But we had a substantive conversation about this that I don't think was pro or anti one way or the other, and tried to make some sense. In fact, the person that said that is someone of Vietnamese heritage. He's a Vietnamese American, and so... yeah. We, we have a little troubled history with Vietnam as well, so maybe there's some understanding uh, of that perspective as well. Anyway, we had a great conversation about it. I thought it was very substantive. Uh, our server, by the way, said, well, you guys have solved all the world's problems. Who wants mozzarella sticks? So uh, <laughs> we'll go over the president's speech and him trying to walk that tightrope as well. I want to start with a story that uh, isn't getting a whole lot of play, except, by the way, from some of our uh, elected representatives from the General Assembly, both in the House and in the uh, uh, Georgia State Senate. This headline from the AJC today, Georgia's plan to expand Medicaid. Remember that? The governor was excited about uh, uh, rolling out this new Medicaid expansion plan that was supposed to give uh, upwards of 350,000 uninsured Georgians the opportunity to uh, get their way into Medicaid. Well, this this was rolled out July 1st. July 1st! Fewer than 2,000 have signed up. In fact, I believe fewer than 1,500 have signed up, if I remember correctly. Uh, Where was the number? 1,343 folks in three months have signed up. Mm. That's not good. Uh, It's really not good when you consider, by the way, that uh, on average in this country, 71 people die every day due to lack of medical insurance. And... For Georgia to get that, I mean, you're you're talking at least what one person a day in the state of Georgia, so we could surmise that maybe ninety or more people in the state of Georgia have lost their life since this failed rollout on July first due to lack of healthcare coverage. The reporter for this story, Ariel Hart, at the Atlanta Journal Constitution article begins: Governor Brian Kemp's plan to offer Medicaid health coverage to three hundred seventy thousand of Georgia's poorest uninsured adults while requiring them to meet work or activity requirements has enrolled just 1,343 people in the three months since it was open. And that's according to the State Department of Community Health uh, as of yesterday morning. 
Enrollment launched July 1st, the article states. Kemp's office recently forecasted that of 370,000 poor uninsured Georgians, 90,000 would ultimately fulfill the requirements for work or activities to qualify for the coverage. 90,000 they projected. And we have 1,343 who have signed up in the first three months. Kemp's office had uh, previously estimated that full enrollment would take about two years. (laughs) At the pace they're going, maybe 20. Article continues, the state is not published, publicized, I should say, a monthly enrollment goal. But if enrollment ramped up evenly to 90,000 over two years, about 11,250 would be expected to sign up over three months' time. And we're at barely more than one-tenth of that. In a statement to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kemp's office said enrollment would increase eventually. And you know what? Trickle down. Economics will trickle down eventually, too. We've been... Just waiting on that since 1981. Anyway, their statement was, uh, we will continue working to educate Georgians about pathways, innovative, first-of-its-kind opportunity, and enroll more individuals in the months to come. Article continues, the plan called Georgia Pathways to Coverage aims to address the state's problem with uninsured poor adults. Georgia has the third worst rate in the nation of uninsured people. And remember, we just said, what was it, a day or two ago? Georgia was just recently ranked the worst state in the country for health care. Under the Affordable Care Act, people below the poverty line make too little money to qualify for health insurance credits on the federal Affordable Care Act marketplace exchange. So ACA officials encourage states to expand Medicaid to all of them, a move that also brings in major federal subsidies. Washington pays 90% of the cost of expansion. Most states have done that. Georgia, however, has not. And we have mentioned this before when we talked about the Forbes article that for the next decade, it would cost Georgia about $350 million to just blanket expansion Medicaid. Georgia is sitting on an $11.7 billion surplus. $11.7 billion. That... billion, by the way, would cover 20 years of Medicaid expansion. 20 years, and we're just looking at $350 million for the next 10 years to expand Medicaid. Going back to the article, though, Kemp rejected the federal Medicaid expansion offer. Instead, he worked with the Trump administration to develop its own program. It limits coverage to people who can prove they work 80 hours a month or perform other specified activities. Around the country, 39 states have already expanded their Medicaid program, including many that have engineered their own expansion programs. But Georgia will be the only one to launch an expansion with built-in work requirements. Now, rightly so, and I don't judge you. Some of you may be wondering, well, why wouldn't people sign up for this if it's available to them? Well, first of all, you have to consider that uh, most folks who do meet these requirements probably already are on Medicaid. In fact, uh, this article from last spring from the Center for Budget Policy and Priorities says most working-age adults receiving assistance from programs like SNAP and Medicaid are already working for pay or temporarily between jobs. For those who aren't, most are providing unpaid care to children or other family members, attending school, or are out of work because of their own health problems. However, the complexity of these policies 
like paperwork, documentation requirements, further increases the risk that significant numbers of people, including those meeting and who should be exempt from the requirements, such as people with disabilities and family caregivers, will lose benefits. I mean, think about it this way. How many of us love filing our taxes every year? Could you imagine doing that every pay period? Like every week? Every other week? Every month? Yeah, it's a drain. It sucks. Yeah. And when you're maybe carrying on multiple tasks, like being a parent and working a job and caregiving for maybe a senior relative, things fall by the wayside. Miss one documentation period and you'll be kicked right out, right? In fact, uh, continuing this article from the CBPP, red tape and a lack of assistance in claiming exemptions make it very hard for large numbers of participants to comply. The result being that these policies can't be fixed by trying to carve out certain populations. In fact, let me continue on because what Georgia is doing, Arkansas already tried briefly before the courts smacked their policy down. Work requirements threaten to take assistance away from these people who need it, harming them and their families, experience shows. For instance, when Arkansas briefly implemented work requirements in Medicaid, one in four participants lost their health coverage. Next paragraph. People of color are at greater risk of having assistance taken away due to a work requirement, which lessens economic security and health programs' progress in broadening opportunity and narrowing racial disparities. Despite the evidence, though, policymakers have continued to advance proposals to take benefits away from people not meeting work requirements. <laughs> the longer I live, the more it just it, it just makes me chuckle, as long as I can continue to chuckle at how our health insurance and health care in this country is just a broken fluster clock. Saw this headline. Gosh, this was probably a week or so ago. It's just one of those tabs I kept open because I thought I'd get around to it. Uh, the headline, employer-sponsored health care coverage costs jumped this year. More hikes may be coming. Associated Press reporting this one. The cost of health care coverage through work jumped this year in part because of inflation, according to a survey of U.S. employers. Premiums for both family and single plans climbed 7% after barely rising in 2022, according to a report uh, this whatever Wednesday, maybe a week or so ago, uh, by KFF, a nonprofit that researches health care issues. Uh, later this fall, companies begin their annual coverage enrollment window for 2024, and healthcare experts say another price hike could be coming. And can I just tell you, I, I mentioned earlier this week, I uh, lost a close friend of mine who passed away, uh, probably from some COVID, long COVID symptoms that he put off and put off and put off because he doesn't like going to the hospital. Who does, right? Nobody likes going to the hospital, but what they really don't like is the copay. And he had good insurance, but he was afraid of the out-of-pocket expense of having to be seen by somebody due to his having COVID. And because that didn't happen and because he had something that I believe was eminently treatable, but just not discovered for more than a month, he's no longer with us. Lack of health care coverage kills people. Even having health care coverage, but also having debilitating out-of-pocket expenses kills people as well. 
Most Americans can relate to that, too. According to Bankrate's annual emergency fund report, according to Fortune magazine, this is in January, 68% of people are worried they wouldn't be able to cover their living expenses for just one month if they lost their primary source of income. And when push comes to shove, the majority, 57% of U.S. adults, are currently unable to afford a $1,000 emergency expense. Yeah, that'll keep you from going to the hospital, right? Okay, back to the AJC article I sparked this conversation with, covering the lack of enrollees for the Medicaid slight expansion that Governor Kemp pitched and began in July 1st. Kemp's office said he wants to encourage people to improve their lives by working, attending school, or doing other activities, helping move them up into the workforce where private health insurance, (laughs) which gets more and more expensive, would become available. But the state's plan would not cover, for example, a poor single mom who can't afford childcare and stays home to watch her children. Others who would not be covered are those caring for a relative with dementia and those who are physically or mentally disabled but not federally declared disabled. By the way, another little something pointed out in this article, and yes, I will share all of this in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Low enrollment number, potentially touchy subject. When a state employee in a public meeting this fall revealed only 265 had enrolled in Pathways first month, Democrats pounced, calling the program a loser. The State Department of Community Health later declined to provide the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with any sign-up numbers when requested under the Georgia Open Records Act, saying the data would be made public later. As a matter of fact, at the start of this article, there was an update that the reporter, Ariel Hart, shared. It said, hours after the AJC told Kemp's office this story would report the apparent violation of the Open Records Act, the State Department of Community Health began providing the enrollment records requested under the law. And denied violating the law. Well, isn't that just cute? Anyway, more on show after this. On the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show, and a happy weekend to you. Looks like we're in for some pretty decent weather the rest of today. It's gorgeous today, and Saturday should look pretty good. I haven't looked much further than that, honestly. I have softball on Saturday, so uh, beyond that, couldn't tell you what the weather's going to be like. (laughs) But, uh, well, I guess I could take a moment out. But you didn't come here to hear me give you a weather forecast, right? Okay, so sunny and low 70s uh, all this weekend. Fine. See, there. All right. Anyway, uh, this morning, however, here in Atlanta, we awoke to rain and thunderstorms. And I love morning rain and thunderstorms. Just the sound just kind of gets you all settled in. I had the cats all curled up. It was just a great day to wake up this morning. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if maybe I'm listening to thunderstorms or is that Kenneth Chesborough's innards bubbling after Sidney Powell made her about face and took a plea deal yesterday. Was it one of those deals where maybe... When you have nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea... Thank you, Pepto-Bismol, for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I laugh. I kid, I laugh. But some pretty jaw-dropping stuff yesterday where Sidney Powell took her plea deal, and then Kenneth Chesborough was left twisting in the wind. I said that yesterday. Oh, he's twisting in the wind. Not so fast. We started seeing tweets from some of the embedded reporters in the courthouse, and next thing you know... Do you understand that this is a negotiated plea, which means your attorneys and the state have reached a negotiated recommendation to make to the court? I do. Do you understand that the court is not bound by that recommendation and could sentence you to the maximum penalty for the charges? I do. Do you understand that the recommendation in this particular case as to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents is five years to be served on probation, a $5,000 fine, 
and that you are, I believe you're asking the court to treat you as a first offender, is that correct? Yes. I'm sorry, $5,000 restitution. You understand that? Yes. And do you understand also special conditions of the probation is that you commit complete 100 hours of community service? Yes. And that you write an apology letter to the citizens of the state of Georgia? Which I have, yes. Yes. And that you truthfully testify at all hearings and trials involving co-defendants in this matter, that you have no communication with co-defendants, witnesses, or the media until all cases have been resolved against all co-defendants? Yes. Has anyone forced, threatened, or promised you anything for you to enter into this guilty plea? No. It is your decision to waive these rights to enter into this guilty plea because you are in fact guilty? Yes. How do you plead to count 15, conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. Have you and your attorney signed that indictment? Yes. Is your guilty plea freely and voluntary given with full knowledge of the charges against you? Yes. Do you understand that you only have a limited right to appeal this guilty plea? Yes. And do you understand that you would have four years from today's date in order to file a habeas corpus petition challenging the voluntariness of this plea? I do. And your honor, the state has, um, in fact, checked and confirmed that Mr. Chesbrough does not have any felony convictions at all, so he has no, no criminal history to the state's knowledge. If this case were to go to trial, the state would have shown the following. Mm -hmm. Between November 18th of 2020 and January 6th of 2021, the defendant and co-conspirators, Donald John Trump, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani, John Charles Eastman, Ray Stalling Smith III, Robert David Cheeley, Michael Roman, and others entered into a criminal conspiracy to cause certain other co-conspirators, including David James Schaefer, Sean Micah Thrasher Steele, and Kathleen Austin Latham to falsely hold themselves out as the duly elected and qualified electors for the president and vice president from Georgia following the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election. The objections of objectives of the criminal conspiracy included the following. One, to recruit certain individuals to falsely hold themselves out as the duly elected and qualified presidential electors from Georgia. Two, to create false electoral college documents including a false certificate of vote purporting to have been made by the authority of the duly elected and qualified presidential electors from Georgia. Three, to falsely state that co-conspirator Donald John Trump had won all of, the, all of Georgia's electoral college votes. And four, to deliver those false documents to the Georgia Secretary of State, the Chief Judge of the Northern District of Georgia, the Archivist of the United States, and the President of the United States Citizen being the Vice President. The purpose of creating these de and delivering these false documents were to disrupt and delay the joint session of Congress on January the 6th, 2021. Mm. By using the false documents from Georgia and other states in an attempt to cause Vice President Michael Pence to violate the Electoral College Act and the United States Constitution. This was part of a multi-state criminal conspiracy mm -hmm. to unlawfully overturn the results of the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election in favor of the co-conspirator Donald John Trump, who did not win that election. Mm -hmm. Specifically pertaining to count 15 of the indictment, federal laws require the electoral college documents are maintained in multiple places, including the United States District Court and where the electors met and cast votes 
In the Northern District of Georgia, electoral college documents are maintained in the clerk's office, administrative staff, with other non-case-related documents, including standing orders and orders from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Documents maintained in the administrative safe are public records that can be inspected by members of the public, and members of the public can request certified copies of those documents that contain the clerk's official seal. Overt acts committed to affect this object of the conspiracy included, but are not limited to the following. One, the defendant created and distributed false electoral college documents to individuals in Georgia and other states in coordination with Donald John Trump for President, Inc., also known as the Trump campaign. The defendant provided detailed instructions to co-conspirators in Georgia and other states for creating and distributing... And as you can tell, we're running out of time, but she goes on for quite a while detailing all the little things that Kenneth and Sydney and Rudy and the gang tried to pull off. <laughs> Biden's Oval Office address from last night. Next, when the Ron Show returns here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. Last night, President Joseph Robinette Biden addressed the nation from the Oval Office after his whirlwind trip. And, I mean, we're talking about a dude in into his 80s running for re-election and hopped on a late-night Air Force One flight into essentially a war zone, whirlwind meetings, got back on the plane, came back. Y'all worried about how old he is and uh, if he gets sleepy, Joe? I mean, if he's sleepy, he's sleeping on that plane, maybe getting a few winks in here or there. But I got to say, you know, as you get older, you don't sleep as much, right? Like, I don't. I woke up at 5.45 this morning. I, who is this person that's waking up at 5.45? And I went to bed at like midnight and I'm, I'm good. I'm caffeinated, but I'm good. Got to talk to my progressive friends on the left. Those of you who are, and, and I'm right there with you. Like I, I have uh, sympathy and empathy for the Palestinian, the, the, the Gaza resident who, uh, you know, is suffering needlessly uh, in the midst of all this. There are innocents who are, are suffering needlessly and some losing their lives. And it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I, I believe in, in the right for a, existence of a Palestine and I believe in the right of an existence for, of an Israel. It's, it's unfortunate. Like I can have a longer conversation about that, but we have to start talking about the whole like uh, arrest Joe Biden for war crimes business. The, the man's got to thread a needle here. There are some political realities at stake and I actually think he's kind of doing a good job and we, we got to tamp down this whole like war crimes president kind of uh, discussion because, again, we've got an election coming up in 12 months, and we all need to be on the same page. And I, I, I don't like to play the lesser of two evils, and I'm not saying that we're dealing with two evils in this case. I think we have a president who, as well, is empathetic to the plight of the innocent person on either side of the wall uh, between Gaza and Israel. Anyway, let's uh, listen in on his address last night, and we'll uh, kind of uh, fast-forward through some of it and make some comments along the way if we need to. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We're facing an inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. That's what I'd like to talk with you about tonight. You know, earlier this morning, I returned from Israel. <clears throat> they tell me I'm the first American president to travel there during the war. Mm. I met with the prime minister and members of his cabinet. 
And most movingly, I met with Israelis who had personally lived through horrific horror of the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October. More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel, including at least 32 American citizens. Scores of innocents, from infants to the elderly grandparents, Israelis, Americans taken hostage. As I told the families of Americans being held captive by Hamas, we're pursuing every avenue to bring their loved ones home. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage. And by the way, we did have uh, American hostages, not all of them, but two of them released earlier today. Just wanted to provide that footnote. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. In Israel, I saw people who are strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock and in deep, deep pain. I also spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, and reiterated the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away. Like so many other, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. Absolutely. You know, the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy, and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine. People that were very badly hurt since Putin launched his all-out invasion. We've not forgotten the mass graves, the bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians, and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children forcibly taken into Russia, stolen from their parents. It's sick. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, and don't think for one second that they're not tied in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I firmly believe that. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, Mr. President. Completely annihilated. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. Yep. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. He claims the Soviet Union created Ukraine. And just two weeks ago, he told the world that if the United States and our allies withdraw, and if the United States withdraw, our allies will as well, military support for Ukraine would have, quote, a week left to live, but we're not withdrawing. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So if we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. He's, Putin's already threatened to remind, quote, remind Poland mm -hmm. that their Western land was a gift from Russia. Mm -hmm. 
One of his top advisors, a former president of Russia, has called Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania Russia's Baltic provinces. That's right. These are all NATO allies. For 75 years, NATO has kept peace in Europe and has been the cornerstone of American security. And if Putin attacks a NATO ally, we will defend every inch of NATO which the treaty requires and calls for. We'll have something that we do not seek. Make it clear, we do not seek. We do not seek to have American troops fighting in Russia or fighting against Russia. Beyond Europe, we know that our allies and maybe most importantly our adversaries and competitors are watching. They're watching our response in Ukraine as well. And if we walk away and let Putin erase Ukraine's independence, would-be aggressors around the world be emboldened to try the same? That's right. The risk of conflict and chaos could spread in other parts of the world, in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Iran is, is, is supporting Russia in Ukraine, yep. and is supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region, mm -hmm. and will continue to hold them accountable, I might add. The United States and our partners across the region are working to build a better future for the Middle East, one where the Middle East is more stable, better connected to its neighbors, and through innovative projects like the India Middle East Europe Rail Corridor that I announced this year at the summit of the world's biggest economies. More predictable markets, more employment, less rage, less grievances, less war when connected. It benefits the people, it would benefit the people of the Middle East and would benefit us. And that's only going to be aided by, I believe, a path to the right to exist as an equal for the Palestinian. And this, again, is where I talk to the very much pro-Palestinian, but also Biden is a war criminal folks here in the U.S. and say, he's telling Netanyahu this. Make no mistake, in private conversations, we've heard a lot of whispers from inside the White House that Biden is not mincing his words when it comes to the right of the Palestinian. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. Mm -hmm. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine, is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Help us keep American troops out of harm's way. Help us build a world that is safer, more peaceful, more prosperous for our children and grandchildren. Good luck getting that out of Congress with the mess we've got on the House floor right now. In Israel, we must make sure that they have what they need to protect their people today and always. The security package I'm sending to Congress and asking Congress to do is an unprecedented commitment to Israel's security that will sharpen Israel's qualitative military edge, which we've committed to, the qualitative military edge. We're going to make sure Iron Dome continues to guard the skies over Israel. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region Know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. Look, at the same time, President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. And <clears throat> the people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. 
Yesterday, in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. Israel and Palestinians equally deserve to live in safety, yes. dignity, and peace. Yes. You know, and here at home, we have to be honest with ourselves. In recent years, too much hate has given too much oxygen, fueling racism, the rise of anti-Semitism, Islamic phobia, yep. right here in America. Yep. It's also intensified in the wake of recent events that led to the horrific threats and attacks that both shock us and break our hearts. On October 7th, terror attacks have triggered deep scars and terrible memories in the Jewish community. Today, Jewish families worried about being targeted in school, wearing symbols of their face walking down the street, or going out about their daily lives. And I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many others are outraged and hearty, saying to yourselves, here we go again with Islamophobia and distrust yep. we saw after 9-11. Yep. Just last week, a mother was brutally stabbed. A little boy here in the United States, a little boy who just turned six years old was murdered in their home outside of Chicago. His name was Wadiha, Wadiha, a proud American, a proud Palestinian American family. We can't stand by and stand silent when this happens. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. And to all you hurting, those of you hurting, I want you to know I see you. You belong. And I want to say this to you. You're all America. You hear that? Oh, my God. See, this is, this is the thing. I, I have to, again, address my, my, my super leftist, you know, very pro-Palestinian and uh, Biden's a worker. Y'all, you got to be listening to what this man's saying, right? He is talking about, he said, two-state solution. Palestinian, Israeli, both deserve to live in peace and, uh, you know, in safety. And well, I, I, I'm trying to understand where those on the extremes are looking at what or how this president is handling this scenario and, and finding a whole lot of, I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we, we can't just presume that everything uh, the Israeli military or Israeli, Israeli intelligence is telling us is, is rock solid fact. Uh, there's going to be spin. There are going to be mistakes that are going to be made in uh, a theater of war. But at the same time, you, you have to admit he is also understanding that there are human beings involved in Gaza, who had nothing to do with the attack two weekends ago, that are innocent casualties if injured or killed. And again, I implore you to ask yourself, if this were the second term of President Donald Trump, do you think you'd be hearing that from him at all? You know, in moments like these, when fear and suspicion, anger and rage run hard, that we have to work harder than ever to hold on to the values that make us who we are. We're a nation of religious freedom, freedom of expression. We all have a right to debate and disagree. 
without fear of being targeted in schools or workplaces or in our communities. Well, <clears throat> I must renounce violence and vitriol. See each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. And that's where I have to look to those on the right who are blacklisting folks who are demonstrating on college campuses from being hired and go, hmm, this feels very McCarthy-ish. When I was in Israel yesterday, I uh, said that when America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. Yeah. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. Yes, we did. So I cautioned the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. Yes. And here in America, let us not forget who we are. Mm -hmm. We reject all forms, all forms of hate, whether against Muslim, Jews, or anyone. Mm -hmm. That's what great nations do. Yep. And we are a great nation. On Ukraine, I'm asking Congress to make sure we can continue to send Ukraine the weapons they need to defend themselves and their country without interruption so Ukraine can stop Putin's brutality in Ukraine. They are succeeding. When Putin invaded Ukraine, he thought he would take Kyiv and all of Ukraine in a matter of days. Well, over a year later, Putin has failed, and he continues to fail. Kyiv still stands because of the bravery of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine has regained more than 50% of the territory Russian troops once occupied backed by U.S.-led coalition of more than 50 countries around the world, all doing its part to support Kyiv. What would happen if we walked away? We are the essential nation. Meanwhile, Putin has turned to Iran and North Korea to buy attack drones mm -hmm. and ammunition to terrorize Ukrainian cities and people. From the outset, I've said, I will not send American troops to fight in Ukraine. All Ukraine is asking for is help for the weapons, munitions, the capacity, the capability to push invading Russian forces off their land and the air defense system to shoot down Russian missiles before they destroy Ukrainian cities. Let me be clear about something. We send Ukrainian equipment sitting in our stockpiles. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, we use it to replenish our own stores, our own stockpiles with new equipment. Equipment that, defeat, that defends America and is made in America. Patriot missiles for air defense batteries made in Arizona. Artillery shells manufactured in 12 states across the country, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas, and so much more. You know, just as in World War II, today patriotic American workers are building the arsenal of democracy and serving the cause of freedom. Let me close with this. Earlier this year, I boarded Air Force One for a secret flight to Poland. There, I boarded a train with blacked-out windows for a 10-hour ride each way to Kyiv to stand with the people of Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of their brave fight against Putin. And I'm told I was the first American to enter a war zone not controlled by the United States military since President Lincoln. Mm. With me was just a small group of security personnel and a few advisors. But when I exited that train and met Zelensky, President Zelensky, I didn't feel alone. I was bringing with me the idea of America, the promise of America, to the people who are today fighting for the same things we fought for 250 years ago, freedom, independence, self-determination. And as I walked through Kyiv with President Zelensky, with air raid sirens sounding in the distance, 
I felt something I've always believed more strongly than ever before. America is a beacon to the world. Still, still. Whereas my friend Madeleine Albright said, the indispensable nation. Tonight there are innocent people all over the world who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us and are waiting for us. But time is of the essence. I know we have our divisions at home. <clears throat> we have to get past them. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. My fellow Americans, thank you for your time. May God bless you all. And may God protect our troops. That was last night from the Oval Office, President Biden addressing the nation to explain rationale for the U.S. supporting Israel and Ukraine simultaneously, while also maintaining the argument for humanitarian empathy for the people of Gaza. One more super short segment after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show. Final segment of The Ron Show, heading into the weekend. And I have to point out something that always irks me when Islamophobia creeps up in this country. I see this argument all the time from those on the right. Why would you, an outspoken gay person, want to support anyone who is Muslim? Why would you want to support the right for the existence of a Palestinian state where you would surely be treated uh, as a mongrel or be hanged or tossed off the top of it. They always give you that stuff, though. You, you'd be pushed off the top of a tall building, blah, blah, blah. You know, first of all, uh, if I were to try and keep tabs on all the countries that I can and can't visit because of my being gay, uh, trust me, I would fall into some countries that are big allies of the United States of America. For example, Bangladesh. Under Bangladesh's penal code, those engaging in same-sex relations can be thrown in prison for life. In fact, it wasn't all that long ago in uh, Dhaka that a lesbian couple uh, was arrested just for marrying in secret. Uh, then you're, uh, you've got Kenya. Homosexuality carries, just, the, just being gay, carries a sentence of up to 14 years, up to 21 with extenuating circumstances. Uh, according to the Kenya Human Rights Commission, Security forces routinely harass, arrest, and detain uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Kenyans, and they demand bribes or sex in exchange for leniency. Those who refuse are sometimes raped. You got Pakistan. Pakistan's a U.S. ally, tenuous at that, but still. Qatar, also in the Middle East, which makes sex between men punishable by up to seven years in prison. Uh, lesbian sex somehow legal there. Saudi Arabia, huge U.S. ally. The religious police uh, have raided private gatherings to arrest suspected homosexuals. As recent as 2005, they arrested 100 men at a private party charged with deviant sexual behavior. They were sentenced to prison time and flogging. 
You have uh, Uganda, for example. Homosexuality carries a maximum sentence of life in prison. At the end of 2012, Uganda police intensified its persecution of the LGBT, targeting the Youth on Rock Foundation, which runs anti-AIDS programs for youth. It arrested and detained four activists affiliated with the organization. The United Arab Emirates, also an anti-gay country. The country's individual emirates, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, punish homosexual acts with maximum penalties of 14 and 10 years, respectively. Even Yemen, Yemen, a a close ally with the United States since we've had to deal with Al-Qaeda in the infancy of this century. I know a lot of these are Muslim countries, but they're allies. What's a gay guy to do but push for equality nonetheless? That's what I'm going to do. Have a great weekend. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast afterwards. Show notes at RonshowATL.com. See you.